This is a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome, everybody, to Your Rights at Work. Chris Garlock here once again with Ed Smith. See if he can remember how to do this after our week off last week. Hey, if you've got questions, and I know you do, about your workplace rights, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, now would be the time to give us a call, 202-588-0893. That's 202-588-0893. Ed Smith, you got a little something-something for us. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Good to be back on the air. Um, and yes, I wanted to let you know that uh, Your Rights at Work is a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. There's nearly 150 labor radio and podcast shows out there just like ours. And you can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. That's laborradionetwork.org. Next up, we are going to have Joe McCartan on the Supreme Court, Errol Schweitzer on why worker organizing is so essential to the food industry, plus some original music from local folk singer Steve Jones. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to WPFW 89.3 FM. If you want to go quickly... Go alone If you want to go far Go together If you want solidarity To last forever If you want to go far We got to go together The world is on the edge right now it's a truth we can't avoid The people together will triumph Or the world could be destroyed This journey could be a long one Please walk with me Step by step we'll march Until we reach victory If you want to go quickly Go alone if you want to go far, go together. If you want solidarity to last forever. If you want to go far, we got to go together. On June 24th, the Supreme Court overturned the historic Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion in the United States nearly 50 years ago. The decision sent shockwaves across the country and through the American labor movement, which recognizes that reproductive rights are a worker issue, affecting millions of working women and their families. Last week, I asked labor historian Joe McCartan to give us a historical perspective on the Supreme Court's decision. For most of its history, the court's just been a disaster for workers. From a long-term historical point of view and from a labor point of view, what we're seeing in the Supreme Court in recent years is a kind of reversion to form. There was a brief period between the 30s and the 70s where the court was more pro-worker than it had ever been before or since. Um, 
And there are things that it did in the period since the 60s that helped, you know, the reputation continue to survive, um, that it was somewhat of a guardian of individual rights. I think you see this um, in uh, what it did on some civil rights issues in the 60s, for example, getting rid of the poll tax, um, what it did on um, women's issues when it came to reproductive choice in the Roe v. Wade decision, what it did for, you know, uh, the rights of LGBTQ people in the Obergefell decision even recently, right? Well, as conservative as it's become in recent years, the court still did do Obergefell. Obergefell and um, I would say Roe, what they were about, though, was individual rights. And the court is a lot more, um, has been historically able to recognize individual rights. Collective rights is really where the court always had a problem. And that's where labor always came out and still continues to come out on the short end of the stick legally, uh, overwhelmingly uh, in the Supreme Court and its history. Um, worker rights um, ultimately you know, workers don't have much power as individuals. Um, and uh, for workers to exercise power and voice really requires them to be able to develop a collectivity. The court, you know, has, has for most of its history, been a place where corporate lawyers ended up. Um, Katenji Brown Jackson um, recently elevated to the court. That's an unusual figure in the court's history, just as Thurgood Marshall was. People who defended the, um, the accused, uh, those kind of people haven't historically found their way to the bench. The shift that happens after 1936, where the court backed away, that, that probably wouldn't have happened without... A, overwhelming re-election for Roosevelt, the people basically saying we want more of these programs, and without Roosevelt also kind of taking on the court, uh, which he threatened to do by expanding its, um, its membership. And, and that latter thing might be a thing that we hear more and more about today, given the recent decisions by the court, which increasingly are 6-3 decisions that overturn not only Roe most recently, but, uh, you know, have overturned lots of precedents as well. Just a few years ago, um, this court overthrew a precedent uh, in, the, in the public sector that allowed for the funding of public sector unions by the people they represent um, with the Janus versus AFSCME decision. That was also taking a, a case that seemed to be settled law uh, and basically saying, no, it's not settled anymore, uh, and, and overturning the precedent that had dated back to 1977. In the case of Janus versus Asme, they wanted to, to you know, disempower states from having laws like the one in Michigan that originally set the precedent. So, you know, this court has shown hostility to letting the people decide when they don't like what the people might decide. Uh, and in the case of um, overturning Roe, I think, you know, up until that decision, Roe held in every state. And now it only holds in the states where people uh, will uphold it, um, or the principles behind Roe, at least. Roe itself is gone. But the idea that abortion should be legal will only be true in some states now and not others. And 
you know, there are some I know in, in the movement against abortion who believe that they just took half a loaf in this decision, that they'll be coming back for more. Uh, and I'd be surprised given the the nature of uh, Alito's opinion if he didn't try to give them more next time. How that will play out is unclear. Um, however, you can see a, a sort of parallel between how this court handles some of these kinds of issues regarding reproductive rights and some of the ways it's handled labor issues. Harold Meyerson just did a really good piece in the American Prospect likening this decision to the Dred Scott decision, essentially pointing out that Dred Scott, which was a ruling on slavery, basically, I think Harold was pointing out that Dred Scott disenfranchised an entire race and overturning Roe v. Wade disenfranchises an entire gender. It's, a, it's an earthquake. Um, and, and, you know, there's no denying of that. And, you know, I think um, Harold Meyerson's um, pointing out that it could have an impact as huge as Dred Scott, I think cannot be dismissed. One thing it has in common is that the implications of a decision in one place could be expanded to others. Mm. Um, and uh, that um, puts to the test uh, the, the whole concept of federalism in the United States. And it's been a, you know, a thing that's been fought over for many years. Um, how much power should the federal government have to protect rights? How much should go to the states? Um, for a long time, that question revolved around the labor question uh, and the race question. And both of those things shaped how federalism was argued over for many years. Now, increasingly, I think perhaps gender and reproductive rights could shape how federalist issues are, are argued about as we go forward. Two other questions that occur to me. One is the idea that abortion and reproductive rights is, is a labor issue. And I'd just love to get a take on that from, from a labor history point of view. Well, I think one place where these things really intersect is in working women's lives, yeah. uh, where, mm -hmm. you know, working and deciding when and how to have your family, this is a, a delicate balance for many people, um, and for most people, I would say. And so reproductive rights and working lives, uh, they intersect, they can't help but intersect. And so, you know, in a certain way, I think this issue will resonate um, broadly among workers. And, you know, let's face it, in complicated ways, because this is a diverse and complicated country with people who have differing views on these issues. But one thing is clear is that they affect everybody, even if everybody doesn't necessarily look at them the same way. And I think that's a, that's a, a challenge for the labor movement, some of whose members, no doubt, support the Supreme Court decision, most of whom, whose members, like most of the country, probably do not. Um, the labor movement in this country has constantly been challenged by uh, the effort to build solidarity among people who might not agree about everything. Um, and so the labor movement will have to navigate a way of dealing with this question as a labor issue, um, but also mindful that it's a diverse labor movement and a, a labor movement trying to become more diverse. How do you deal with that? And, and no doubt it's younger members, I think, are going to be 
among those who push hardest for taking on an issue like this and, and really making it a priority for unions. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Moyne wraps up with saying that the landmark civil rights and personal rights decisions were possible only because political movements created the preconditions for the justices to rule as they did, and that the justices began to whittle those same rulings down as soon as popular support for them waned. I guess what I'm wondering is, looking at it from a historical point of view, how does that look to you? You know, I think Moyne is, is so right. Uh, and, you know, to, to return to center on the labor question here at the end, we're not going to see progress uh, on labor law reform. We're not going to see a better Supreme Court when it comes to workers' rights without a movement, without something happening in the streets, without a struggle. I think as we look around today, we do see evidence, especially from younger people, that they want to engage with this issue and that they're ready to build a movement. Uh, just to take one example, what's been happening in these Starbucks stores around the country, which I think is uh, just like the the sense of a wave building is what you feel around that. And um, it's that kind of thing that's going to be necessary before we ever have a court system that responds to workers' rights. Um, before before people respect workers' rights, before the courts do that. Historically, as we've said, they've tended not to do it. I think there's something generational that's building. Uh, and if you look across our institutions, um, you know, so many of our institutions now are run by a gerontocracy, it seems, you know, um, and uh, like younger people are are impatient, I think, with the leadership of many of our social institutions. And so, um, you know, we're bound to see um, more evidence of that, I think, in the times ahead. I love the way that, that these folks at Starbucks and Amazon uh, are not too concerned about the niceties of labor law. You know, they're just like, nah, we'll, we'll just organize and, and act like we're a union and y'all can sort that out. <laughs> Well, in, in a way, I think that's so necessary because if we continue to think inside the box that we've been forced into over the decades, uh, I don't see how we get out of that box. So I think that that kind of thinking is really refreshing and, and really needed at this time. Uh, Joe McCartan, wonderful to have some historical perspective, uh, as always, especially in times like this. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Great to talk to you as always, Chris. So, Errol Schweitzer, welcome to your rights of work. Uh, why don't you start by telling folks a little bit about yourself? I have been in the food industry uh, for the better part of 25 years. Uh, started out as a retail clerk, food service, worked in warehouses, uh, done some work on farms and community gardens and farmers markets. I spent um, about 14 years at Whole Foods, including seven years leading their national grocery program, and for the last six years. I've been a board member advisor consultant to over 25 uh, organic and natural food companies and retailers. So you've got a great piece, why worker organizing is so essential to the food in industry uh, in the latest Forbes. And I wanted to talk to you about the main issues you raise in the piece, but 
but also I was particularly interested in how you frame them for this particular audience. I mean, I was just reading through it online and every corporate reference in the article has got this little cool live widget that shows you, you know, they're up 0.2 or down, you know, I was like, yeah. that's not something I usually see in the publications I read. And so it's I'm thinking- It's very Forbes, you know, you know, work, you know, Forbes is definitely <laughs> in the financial sector. So, and, uh, you know, I mean, as somebody who thinks dialectically, like I love the contradictions inherent in the type of writing that so far I have been encouraged to do. Um, as you know, I also have a background as a community organizer. I worked on tenants' rights and environmental justice, um, and I've always been a, a sympathizer to the labor movement. And in fact, I am a member of the National Writers Union too. So I have a unique perspective on the food industry. And having come up through the ranks, like I know what it's like to stock shelves. I know what it's like to um, you know pick and pack slots. I know what it's like to you know work overnight shifts and turn around and come in at five or six in the morning after three hours of sleep. Um, and I also know what it's like to not be treated well at work. And so this, this sort of thing for me is, is a natural extension of you know, my own career and, and interests, but also um, really compelled to it by you know, what's going on in this country. And the fact that I'm inspired, um, particularly by the activities of younger activists who are not putting up with the stuff that many of you know, my friends and colleagues and, and comrades over the years did put up with that made it very hard to organize and get folks together to demand better at work. The article's entitled Why Worker Organizing is So Essential to the Food Industry. And I guess you're trying to talk to the bosses about, you know, why they should treat their workers right. I mean, the model in, in so many businesses, particularly in the food industry, has been, you know, pay the workers as little as possible, churn the workforce as much as possible, and just reap the maximum profits. And and I think the argument you're making here uh, to the bosses is, hey, that's not a good business model. I'm not even making that argument because I'm not going to tell them how to run their business <laughs> because whether or not their business model is good, I don't think has anything to do with this. I'm actually not going to be one of those people who says, well, if you unionize your workers, it'll be better for business. That's not the point of my article. My point is if workers organize of their own volition because it's their right, it will be better for them, full stop. There's all this conversation about how business can do better and ethical business and millennials and Gen Zers only wanna buy from companies that you know, treat the environment right and treat their workers right. And meanwhile, Chris, 75% of retail grocery clerks are food insecure. You know, Meanwhile, 59,000 meat and retail processing workers got sick from COVID-19 and hundreds died. You know, meanwhile, you know, need, need I go on, the fact that almost no major retailer pays a livable wage to the majority of their workforce, none. There are no good guys in this equation. What I'm saying is if you authentically want to do right by your workforce, this is the only way. And if you don't, then you're just saying that you're, you're joining class war on the wrong side of it. Right. So this is where I'm, I'm sort of not leaning into that liberal argument of like, oh, if you unionize your workforce, it'd be better for business. Maybe it will. Some businesses do run well with the unionized workforce. My point is you as an executive or you as a, you know, whatever your, your role is, if you're reading Forbes, most likely you're in some sort of management position, professional position, um, you know, thinking about, well, if this is important to you, what I'm doing is objectively demonstrating through the facts through Bureau of Labor Statistics, through as much sources and documentation as I could jam into a 1200 word article that takes you seven minutes to read, 
that this is the way to do it, that unionization is the way to assure that workers are treated better, that they're paid better, and the fact that they have better lives. I mean, that's, that's the other thing is these are not your property. You know, people who work at a company where you may happen to be the CEO or the owner or in upper management, you know, you don't own them. You know, they come to work of their own volition because they need to sell their labor to survive. And therefore, you know, there's, there's a compulsion for them. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, beholden to you though. And that's where I, I think some of the CEOs like, like Howard uh, Schultz from Starbucks, who, you know, he calls these people outside adversaries and, you know, uh, that partners are our people. And it's like, I think those are false distinctions. I believe that once you are, um, working for a living, you know, you're paid a wage, you know, you have a level of autonomy with your coworkers to decide what your conditions at that job should be. And any sort of organizing that you do to demand better is, is technically protected activity under the law. You know, whether or not it's really well enforced is another discussion, which I touch on a little bit. Um, and that, I think that speaks to, you know, my sympathies towards, you know, working people, working class people, having come from a working class family and identifying very strongly with the type of organizing that is happening now, particularly in the food industry, which I will keep saying this, Chris, is a hotbed of exploitation. Mm-hmm. You know, the food mm-hmm. industry, when I talk about retail, manufacturing, et cetera, I'm talking about one out of seven jobs in this country is in food, yet eight out of 10 jobs in the food industry are exploitative in terms of not paying well enough, not treating their employees well, having high turnover. You know, and I, clu- I include uh, Amazon in this. Amazon is literally running out of workers to hire in many of their bigger metro areas, including uh, including Southern California, which is like one of their biggest facility areas. I wanted to ask you about that because yeah, yeah. I, I read something, and it could have been one of your articles, frankly. And, and you know, I didn't realize that that Amazon's model, and it kind of reminded me of, of a Ponzi scheme. I mean, that their model is actually intentionally to churn, right? Yeah. That and and but I thought, isn't there a problem with that? Aren't they going to run out of workers? And you're saying that's actually happening now. It is happening now in several large metro areas, and it was it was revealed through the uh, unauthorized release of an internal memo um, at Amazon. And it's actually been their philosophy from the get-go that um, their CEO and founder, Jeff Bezos, uh, didn't want workers to get too comfortable and start making greater demands. But it's also that there's a um, reaction here towards workers having a say in the conditions at work, as opposed to this sovereignty of the corporate class, the sovereignty of upper management and the investors dictating the terms of employment for you know, essentially generating the greatest growth and revenue and profits possible, you know, whatever the cost to the labor force. So that's, that's been part of the model. And he's said that, um, and that's what they practice. And as somebody like, you know, like me, like, yes, I moved up into, you know, greater positions of responsibility, but I was eventually let go. And now, you know, I do consulting and, um, you know, at any time, like my contracts can be, (laughs) can be cut like that type of, um, you know, fragility in, in your, your employment with your, you know, your relationship with your employment, it just it stresses me out because I've been there, like not being able to pay the rent, not being able to pay the bills, having to decide whether, you know, we're taking the kids to the doctor or we're going to go and, you know, are we going to be able to take a vacation? You know, I, I do believe everybody should be entitled to a vacation. Hello, you know, um, or am I having to work all weekend again in my own 
job at Whole Foods, I once counted that I worked 120 weekends at oh over, over 200 weekends across five plus years. Wow. That's because like over two I, years. Yeah. And, and this is why, though. It's because I always felt like in this retail competitive culture, it's a, what have you done for me lately? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a similar vibe where you never know you know, what they're going to be looking over your shoulder for. Are they going to find something? Are they going to push you out because, you know, you're no longer, um, you know, their guy or you're no longer, um, you know, needed in the organization or they hire somebody else to do your job and push you out. And I've worked in, you know, warehouse and, you know, retail positions like this where it's just so fast paced. And like, let's say you get hurt. Let's say like you just, you twist an ankle the wrong way when you're stocking shelves and you're just limping around, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you would think maybe, you know, a company would, you know, have, you know, some empathy or, you know, want to take care of you. But in a philosophy like this with Amazon, it's, it means like, most likely you're, you're not going to be fit for work and you're probably going to, you know, have to go find another job. And, you know, and this isn't to say like there's other policies like their time off task and like the other ways that they grade employees that are truly d- draconian, truly draconian when you consider how fast folks are working, how big these facilities are, how much, how productive they are. Um, you know, how many pieces they're actually moving and stocking on an hourly basis are, you know, for me as somebody who's done that for a living, like, like really crazy. I mean, that's like what they're having to do to keep their jobs is what I used to do on a really good day in terms of stocking shelves. And so when I see this type of turnover, right, and, you know, their injury rates are the highest in the industry, twice as high as Walmart facilities, wow. you know, 150% turnover rate and these injury injury rates that are just they just throw the whole average off you know and i'm just thinking not just beyond the statistics but like well, what does it feel to do that kind of work i remember what my back used to feel like after working a turnaround shift i remember that my knees would give out and that i you know i had to give up cycling and running because i was walking around the store and bending lifting moving stuff around for you know 45 50 hours a week you know and we have to think about this in terms of the human cost to employees in addition to these statistics that are, you know, should be like, you know, pretty terrifying and infuriating for what our workforce goes through. Alice Schweitzer, it's been a joy as always to have you on your rights to work. Keep up the great work. Look forward to having you back. Likewise, Chris, you guys take care out there. Peace. That's it for this week's Your Right to Work. Thanks, as always, to our engineers, Michael Nacella and Kalia Chapman, and to Steve Jones for If You Want to Go Quickly. Thanks so much for listening. Ed Smith and I will be back next week. Until then, stand up for Your Right to Work. This is a public service.